I first met Valerie Jarrett in the West Wing of the White House. Um, and uh, it was during the Obama administration. And I sent her an email saying that uh, I wanted to meet with her. I was the editor of Fortune magazine at the time. And she was very accommodating, said, come on down and let's chat. Um, I will make the time for you. And I remember thinking, oh, this person, you know, she's uh, President Obama's senior advisor. She's not going to have any time. This is sort of a courtesy call. But I remember her really listening to me, which surprised me. Her book uh, was very interesting to me. And what was so amazing to me was that she was talking about a time that seemed like from an entirely different era, i.e. the Obama administration, and yet it's only, what, 18 months ago and two years ago. It's, It's just shocking how much things have changed. And I think it puts what's going on today in sharp relief. Our guest, Valerie Jarrett. Valerie, great to see you. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. Congratulations on your book, Finding Your Voice. Yes. Thank you. It's really a great, great read. I just finished it. And, you know, a couple huge takeaways. First of all, I have to ask you, I mean, is this even the same United States of America or the same White House that we're living in today Uh, versus the one where you occupied the White House several years ago. It's definitely the same United States of America. It is not the same White House. And look, elections have consequences, but for a lot of people around America, they're just trying to make ends meet. Today's equal payday. Working women are trying to figure out how they can get paid equally for the work that they do. People are trying to put food on the table for their families. And I think they're sick and tired of Washington really having a rhetoric and tone that doesn't reflect the core decency of our country. I guess people are really concerned, Valerie, about um, America being so divided up. And I wonder, how will we ever get unified or closer together again? And you say that Americans have lost confidence in their institutions. Is that part of it? And how do we get back together again? Well, it's the power of the individual working collectively for good. And part of what I tried to accomplish in my book is to encourage people to find their voices and recognize the power that each voice has, beginning with voting, for example. I was so disheartened in the last presidential election to see that 43% of eligible voters didn't even participate. And I think everybody has a responsibility to participate because if we don't, I assure you, special interest groups will go in there and fight for the status quo. And what we need is for Americans to realize that if you want to have a government that reflects your values and your priorities, where the leaders are fighting for you every day, You have to vote for people you think will do that, and you have to take the time to understand their record, how they're prepared for this new position, and whether they're going to chart the course where you win. And my takeaway is that everybody needs to get involved. And the midterm elections were heartening. I was delighted to see so many additional women elected to Congress. I think that it's important that people who elect us represent the diversity, rich diversity of our country. And I think they're breathing a breath of fresh air and shaking things up a little bit. So you don't look to me to be disillusioned. You know why? Because I spent a lot of time just talking to ordinary American who are, Americans who are still doing extraordinary things. And I spend a lot of energy trying to help people be civically engaged, whether it's voting, whether it's working at the Obama Foundation, creating a platform for civic engagement to help take evidence-based strategies to scale and excite people about the possibility of participating and making their communities better. There's so much that's good in the world, and so I try to focus on that and get other people to appreciate 
that through using their voices, they can actually affect change. You had a remarkable upbringing and fascinating too. I mean, you grew up in Iran, all over the world, and then the whole Chicago experience. Did you ever expect to be in the White House for all that time? Not in my wildest dreams. And in fact, I always joke with President Obama that when I first met both he and Michelle Robinson, before they were even married, when they were just engaged, I was so impressed with his commitment to service and desire to give back and his intellect and his intellectual curiosity. I mean, he had everything going for him. And I thought, maybe, just maybe one day, you'll be mayor of Chicago. <laughs> that was the that was most the I could dream. That was right. like my definition of you know reaching the pinnacle. And so not only did he exceed my expectations from way back in the day, but I did as well. So after those two terms in the Obama White House, it just ends. I mean, how just do you- Just like that, right. in and, one and second. I, I, that chapter in the book where you talk about turning off the lights, literally, was really striking. And how do you process that and move on from that rush that you had for all those years? And what well, are you doing yes. now? Well, so he helped me with that. I think it was in September of 2016. I said to him, don't you wish we just had like four more years? The first years we were coming out of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We passed the Affordable Care Act, repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell realized that the Republicans weren't going to work with us. In the second term, we were doing a lot of work through executive actions and doing what we could within the administration. I said, don't you wish we just had one more term? And he said to me, Andy, he said, Valerie, 20 million people have health care. We've ended two wars. Osama bin Laden is no longer a threat to us. We have um, really established relationships, improved our reputation around the world. We've entered a climate agreement in Paris with nearly a couple hundred countries to combat climate change. We have a deal with um, the world powers to keep Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Cuba is back with diplomatic relations. We've worked as hard as we could. We've had a great run. Let's go. And I think that he realized before I did the importance of you do your best and then you need fresh set of legs coming in and, and attacking it again. And our hope obviously was that there would be a different set of legs that followed him that would have continued his vision for America. But elections have consequences. And guess what? Uh, next year we have another chance and another opportunity to elect somebody who we do think reflects his vision for America. So what are you doing now? I mean, you just finished the book. Yes, so the big book was a big piece of right. business and I finished that. I joined the faculty at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, and so I love being around young people and the faculty and the issues that I care about from gender equity to criminal justice reform, that's a great incubator to, to focus on those issues. I'm helping President Obama with his foundation. Uh, Michelle Obama and I founded an organization called When We All Vote that's designed to change our culture around voting in a nonpartisan way, trying to get everybody to appreciate they have to get out and vote. I co-chair the United State of Women, which grew out of our White House Council on Women and Girls, our fight for gender equity. So every girl, every woman has that chance to achieve her dreams. Um, and I'm on the speaking circuit and loving every bit of it. I love the fact that I wake up in the morning and I'm at the stage of my life, Andy, where I do exactly what I find fulfilling. And after eight years of working on everything that came before President Obama's desk, it's kind of nice to be able to pick and choose the issues that I care the most about. And they, you know, from gender equity to criminal justice reform to fighting to reduce gun violence to encouraging people to get involved civically, that's what I care passionately about. All right, as the first friend, I want to ask you for a little inside scoop. You talked about what they were doing a little bit. 
what else are they uh, the Obamas up to and how are they doing and how's the library going all those things well so Mrs. Obama just finished her book and started mm -hmm. her tour a right. few months ago uh, best-selling memoir ever in history no surprise to me because I've known her story and shared a good bit of it so what an extraordinary woman she is and a gift that she wrote a memoir to share with everybody uh, he's busy working on his book and standing up the foundation. We have offices both in D.C. and in Chicago, and the plans are coming to fruition. The programs are taking shape. The relationship with the universities, such as the University of Chicago and Columbia, are all gelling, and so it's an exciting time to be a part of the Obama Foundation as well. And look, I think they're doing well. Their, their daughters are grown. They're amazing young women. I think for every family, when you see your kids go off and you feel like I've done a good job. That's a wonderful time in life. And I get, and they get to spend time with each other again without the pressures uh, that he was under as president of the United States. So as he often said to me, he'd heard from reliable sources that being the former president was a really good job. And I think he's enjoying it. Right. All right, well, let's talk about 2020 a little bit. I gather you haven't endorsed anyone yet. I have not. Okay. Um, let me ask you about some specific candidates, though. Um, Joe Biden, obviously, a little controversy surrounding him right now. Do you still feel that he would be qualified to be president? Look, I think he had it right this weekend when he said that it's an important time in our country. It's a time of change, and it's a time where women should be, uh, their voices should be heard. And we need to pay attention to them and respond accordingly. So I was impressed with his comment. And I think everyone who wants to run for office should run for office. That's part of the magic of our democracy. You get in there and you get to try to earn the confidence of the American people. And should he choose to do that, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that he will make a compelling case. I think we have an embarrassment of riches in the Democratic Party right now, and I'm heartened to see so many qualified candidates throw their hat in the ring and still believe that they can make a difference in our country. And I also have been impressed with the optimistic vision that many of them have described for our country and the direction they want to take it. And so it's very early, having been through two presidential campaigns, I know just how early we are right now. And I'm looking forward to see, uh, seeing how things unfold. All right, well, I guess Joe Biden has to deal with his controversies and see if that pans out for him or not. I think every right. candidate has right. to be willing, yeah. as President Obama said, lift up your hood and let people right. kick your tires and okay. see what you're made of. Um, what about uh, Buttigieg? Are we ready for a millennial gay president? <laughs> he's fabulous. And he's, look, he's caught fire. There are a lot of people who'd never heard of him a year ago who have been Do you know him caught at all? Up. You? I do know him uh -huh. because one of my responsibilities in the White House, of course, was being responsible for intergovernmental affairs. And so our nation's mayors were a part of my portfolio. And I, you know, I worked for a mayor, so I'm very prejudiced about loving mayors and what they do. The economic economic engine of our country are our cities, and so he's a terrific young candidate. What economic message, Valerie, do the Democrats need to send to the electorate, to deliver to the electorate? Well, I always say that the candidates who are the most authentic, who describe what they care about and what their vision for America is in a way that reaches people where they are, where, where you sit there and you think, my goodness, that candidate's talking to me. That candidate understands my life, my challenges. I was a single mom, but a single mom with means. I was a lawyer, I had um, great childcare, I had parents who supported me. There are a lot of working families right now that are really struggling. And so as a working, single working mom, I want a candidate who's thinking about what my life is like and how to make it better. And so I think 
part of the magic of the democracy is everybody who gets a vote, you get to decide on your own what's important to you and what message will resonate with you. And do you have the confidence that the person can not only deliver the message, but execute in this very, very toxic time in which we're living in Washington? Elizabeth Warren wants to uh, ban stock ownership for members of Congress. Kamala Harris wants to raise the pay for teachers. Are any of these messages resonating with you? Well, look, my mom uh, is a professional in early childhood education, and, I've, and I have a great appreciation for teachers. And I've often thought that we put our most valuable asset in the hands of people who are not paid for the job that they do. And, uh, but the broader point I think I would want to make is that I'm glad that candidates are putting their ideas out there. I think that too often uh, we tend to focus on controversy or we focus on one gaffe here or there or we focus on issues that the American people aren't thinking about when they're sitting around their kitchen table trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And so I think we have to look for candidates who have an economic uh, vision and a strategy for equal opportunity to make sure that people aren't struggling to figure out how to make ends meet in a country that's the wealthiest country on earth and try not to let ourselves get um, you know distracted the way we did in the last election by rallies and the theater of of the race focus on the substance and so to the democratic candidates who are in the arena who are coming forth with policy ideas I commend them, and it's the beginning of a conversation, and good for them to, for putting their ideas out there and saying, well, tell us, American people, what do you think of these ideas? It's so funny reading your book where you describe yourself as being so shy. I know. I've come a long way, believe me. Right? Believe me. I used to be painfully shy. It's painfully hard to believe. Shy. It's I hard know. to believe. And then, now I can't shut up. Huh? Then, is that what you're trying no, to say? No, that's fine. <laughs> and, and, there's, and your book is filled with strong women characters, um, your mother, yes. um, other role models, mentors. How important, Valerie, is it to have a woman president, either right now or soon? Look, I'd love, I wish we'd had a woman president back in 2016. So I think, I think it's important that everybody have the opportunity to compete. And the fact that we have now, I think it's five women who are actually running for president, that's unprecedented. And I think it's terrific. And I think that, you know, over the course of this campaign, we're going to find out whether they're, uh, whether they have what it takes to really bring it around the finish line. And when I say they, I mean all of the candidates who are running. And so I'm interested in seeing, like, what happens in the next year. It's going to be fascinating to watch. It's already quite captivating. But I think we do have to keep the spotlight on the policies that are going to move our country forward and not just the theater. And it's important to pick, from the Democrats' perspective, a candidate who can beat President Trump. Is that the most important thing? Well, so I will say this to you, Andy. I met with several of the candidates who are running, and generally I keep my advice confidential. But the two things I've said to them is, number one, be authentic. People see through if you're fake. You better be true. Uh, the American people are quite discerning. And number two, uh, Keep your eye on the prize, and that's the general election. And don't bloody up your opponent so much in the primary that whoever emerges as a nominee goes into the general election in a weakened condition. And I actually think that that's not just good advice for the general, but it's good advice for the American people to get um, behind a candidate. What resonates with me is somebody who tells me what they're going to do, not somebody who's putting down all the other candidates in the general in the primary, but what are you going to do for our country? How are you going to make my life better, and why should I trust that you can do that? Let's hope the campaign is like that. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I want to ask you about Lyft. You're on the board of that company, just went public. The stock's 
been a bit weak. Are you disappointed? You know what? I can't obviously comment on the stock price, but I can tell you I joined the board because I believe in the core business. Uh, not only was I commissioner of planning and development for Chicago, but I chaired the board of the Chicago Transit Authority. And the first time I met Logan Green and John Zimmer, the founders, they talked to me about their vision and how they were so frustrated by congestion and realizing that people weren't being served well by the existing way that we move people around in our cities and how could they contribute to make that journey easier. And I love that dedication. I think that they are shrewd businessmen, but they also believe in diversity as a strength. They believe in um, a social conscience and a commitment to our cities. At the announcement last week in Los Angeles, I had the privilege of joining them for that, and uh, Mayor Garcetti was there, and where we announced an investment to help in the homelessness in Los Angeles. And so they put their money where their mouth is, and they invest in the cities in which they do business. They prioritize our drivers, allowed our most um, prized drivers to be loyal drivers to be able to invest in, and be owners themselves. And so I think that they have all the qualities of over the long-term business that will be quite successful. I'm very proud of them. A lot of potential still for that company? I think they have enormous potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about um, tech companies generally? Maybe not the ride-sharing companies as much as the social media companies. So different than from, say, 2008, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitters. Do those companies need more regulation or even need to be broken up? Well, look, I think what is important is that we have a conversation about how to try to keep the mischief that's happening on those platforms at a minimum. We have evidence that there is all kinds of mischief going on now, and they are huge, and it is hard to monitor all of that. Uh, and so what my advice to them has been, and I've spent a fair amount of time traveling around Silicon Valley, is to work with the regulators. What do you think the solutions are? help educate them to understand your business and figure out are there ways where you could make it safer and less able to be penetrated and threatening to our civilization as we know it. And so um, having spent time both at the local level in government and also in the federal government, I always find that it's a lot easier if you work with the regulators than try to fight them. I mean, look, banks spent a lot of money fighting Dodd-Frank millions of dollars were trying trying to keep it from happening and I wish that they had spent more time trying to work with the regulators to ensure that we never were in a situation where the taxpayers had to bail out the banks again as opposed to just saying no come and work with us and there are examples of financial institutions who who do that and I think that that's a healthier approach to solving the problems that we have rather than just trying to ignore the problems or say no to the regulators. I mean, speaking of Dodd-Frank though there's been a backlash to that, not only from Wall Street, which is not surprising, but also from Congress itself, which is look to roll it back, including some Democrats. Did that surprise you? It did a bit, but look, you, you make the best judgments you can while you're in the positions that you're in. And you have to be willing to adjust to the circumstances. Just as you were saying about the tech companies, when President Obama was in office, um, much of what they were doing was bringing the world closer together, offering ways for us to communicate more effectively, share information, um, gather and discuss important ideas together, socialize together. And now we're seeing a lot of the misdeeds that can be done on those platforms. And so you have to adjust. And I think part of what you expect from your government and from business leaders is when new issues do come to the surface, deal with them. Deal with them responsibly, deal with them in a transparent way where everybody can see what's going on and try to learn from what's happened in the past. 
You talk about um, watching the uh, election returns in 2016 with the Obamas and watching a movie. Um, what was that like as the returns came in and the mood sort of changed, I guess? Well, it was pretty depressing, to say the very least. Um, it's, uh, it wasn't what I expected. I actually didn't see it coming. And as I said to you earlier, I was so profoundly disappointed that 43% of eligible voters didn't vote. Uh, and so that struck me. But I also am old enough to appreciate that our democracy has never moved forward in a straight line. And there always have been zigs and zags along the way. And sometimes those are wake-up calls. And I was heartened to see beginning the day after the inauguration, the Women's March. I was amazed to see these young people from Parkland who won the hearts of the American people who turned out in millions all over the country for the March for Our Lives. The level of activism that we're seeing around this country is another reason why I'm still very optimistic. And I think that that's a good thing for our country. I think uh, we have to hold our elected officials accountable. And that has nothing to do with party politics. That has to do with good government. So many things, Valerie, fell into place for President Trump to win that election. I think even he was surprised, or at least that's what accounts would have us believe. In any way, though, do you think that President Obama is responsible for Donald Trump being elected? No, I don't. Because of any of the policies that he had, that he didn't reach out to those disenfranchised white rural voters enough or something like that? You don't think that's the case? I think we made an immense effort to improve the lives of rural America. I believe our agenda was one that touched every American and made their lives better. The Affordable Care Act that is now enjoying record popularity uh, provided a safety net of health insurance for people who had been discriminated against. Uh, and so I think, look, we did the best we could while we were there. President Obama inherited the worst economy, the worst since the Great Depression, and by all measures uh, moved our economy forward, cutting the unemployment rate in half. So no, I think there are a lot of reasons why, um, why he won, but I wouldn't put, the, put it on the shoulders of President Obama. Is there any advice you'd like to give to President Trump? No, I'm out of the senior advisor role, <laughs> right. uh, and so he's surrounded by people, and I think that, as I said, presidents get to pick the people to whom they listen, they get their counsel and advice. I had eight years to give President Obama my advice, uh, and now I'm working to try and encourage the Democrats who are running in the next election to uh, present themselves as well as possible. Ah, does that mean you would potentially get back in the game for someone else? You know, it's too early to say. Um, I certainly will get behind whoever the nominee is. I can tell you that for sure. President Trump said he would delay reforming the Affordable Care Act until after the 2020 election. And I'm chuckling a little bit because, of course, he might not be there to do that. Do you have any, I mean, let's talk about the ACA uh, because I know that was a big deal for you. It was a big deal for the American people. Right. Let's be very clear. Yes. I mean, we did that in order to reform our health insurance system in this country to ensure that people could have access to health care. And I find it astounding that the Republicans are still talking about repealing it. One in two Americans have a pre-existing condition. I have one. People in my family have one. My guess is that everybody in this room knows somebody with a pre-existing condition. And as of the Affordable Care Act being passed, insurance companies could no longer discriminate against people. And a pre-existing condition could be asthma. It could be a woman who's in childbearing age. It could be something more serious like cancer 
or um, a heart condition, when you need it most, you shouldn't have to worry about losing your insurance or paying higher rates. You shouldn't have to face lifetime or, an or annual caps when you need it the most. Young people should be able to stay on their parents' plans. Women should have preventive care. Senior citizens shouldn't have to cut their prescription drugs in half in order to make, um, and make them stretch. And so why, why, after all this time, are the Republicans still talking about repealing it? And I would hasten to add, 10 years later, they still don't have a replacement plan that they're prepared to get behind. And so you would take it away and hurt hundreds of millions of Americans instead of working with what you have to make it better to score some sort of a political point when the majority of Americans actually support the Affordable Care Act? I don't get you it. You make a strong case. I don't get I, it. I think that, but it's interesting that, I mean, isn't the fact that he's saying we'll take care of that after the election is almost capitulation. I mean, it's, it's recognizing it's, the fact that it's right. popular and even maybe within his own party, he didn't get support for repealing it now. Even though that was what I was hearing a couple of days ago is, well, let's just repeal the whole thing. And from, I mean, I don't know any more inside information on where the Republicans stand than you, but from what I heard in the news, he didn't get a lot of traction up on the hill from his own party about repealing the Affordable Care Act. Well, that's what that would indicate, I would that's guess. That's what that right? would indicate, yes, I think, too. right. What about Medicare for All? What do you think about that? Look, Medicare is a very popular program, and I think that there's nothing wrong with trying to figure out a way to get from where we are now to ensuring every American has access to it. Does it happen overnight? No. But I think that it's, it's well within... Um, the conversation to be talking about how do we improve on our existing system. President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act and that made a lot of progress. But what do we want to do next? And in a country as wealthy as ours, shouldn't we be able to assure that health care is a right, not a privilege? Right, right. Um, I want to ask you about wealth and income inequality because it seems to me that's sort of a root cause of a lot of our problems in this country. And I, I want to ask you if you agree with that, number one, and number two, what you think of uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Warren's uh, proposals to uh, tax the, the wealthy at a much greater extent than they are um, already. Does that make sense to you? Well, this is what I think. I think we are a nation that is increasingly becoming a, a nation of rich and poor. And part of what made our country strong was having a robust middle class. And so I'm all for ways of creating um, a larger middle class, not dividing up the pie, but increasing the size of the pie. That comes with education. That comes with having a workforce that's prepared for the jobs of the future. Technology is a, is a revolution that our generation is going through and it's creating amazing efficiencies. But what happens to those people who are out of work as a result of those efficiencies? The gig economy has a lot of advantages. I mean, Lyft, for example, 91% of our drivers work fewer than 20 hours a week. So they're supplementing their income with driving a lift and that provides them with a cushion. Well, what else are we doing to make sure that people who want to provide for their families have the wherewithal to do that? And so I think the conversation should be a very open one. And I think that there is no reason why we cannot increase the taxes on the very wealthy. But at the same time, where are we spending that money? Are we investing in infrastructure, which would create jobs right away? Something that President Obama tried to get Republicans to do for eight years. Traditionally, something that was bipartisanly supported because it does provide our economy not only with a shot in the arm, but it keeps us globally competitive. 
What are we doing to make college more affordable? What are we doing to improving the public education system? What are we doing to making sure that everybody who wants to grow up and go to college can do so and afford it? There are lots of ways that we could be growing the middle class, and I think that's where that's the lens through which I look at it. I want to drill down with infrastructure and just the little bit of time we have left um, and ask you about that. I mean, isn't that just a blue state, red state problem that so many of the projects are in blue states and that's why the Republicans don't go along with it? And then also ask you about your take on the Green New Deal, if you have an opinion there. Well, I'll say with, start with that first. Look, it's a moonshot. And I think I commend uh, so many of the young members of Congress, when I say young, I don't mean just in age, but in tenure, to coming up with ideas that we can all look for the, towards the future. And it doesn't have to be materialized today or tomorrow, but we should be thinking down the line, how do we position our country and the world so that we survive and thrive? Climate change is a scientifically proven reality. We cannot put our heads in the, in the sand and ignore it. If we do so, we do so to the detriment of our children and our grandchildren. And so I think we should be thinking boldly. We should be trying to figure out what can we do to improve our cli the climate of our, of our world, not just our country. The Paris Accord went a long way. I was very disappointed to see the United States pull out of it, heartened to see business leaders such as the former mayor of New York, Mayor Bloomberg, commit to continue to work on climate change, notwithstanding the president pulling out of it. Businesses and governors all across our country doing the same thing. And so, yes, I think we ought to be tackling these big issues. We shouldn't be shying away from them and putting them off for future generations to have to deal with to their peril. And the infrastructure problem, how do we solve that? Well, look, I don't know that it breaks down in red and blue states because my view is, is that it's the United States competing in a global marketplace. Right. And so if we invest in the airport here in New York, and I've been in and out of LaGuardia, you compare that to airports that I know, Andy, you have been all yes. over the world. It's embarrassing. It is. And it is now getting an infusion of cash, and that's a good thing. It's not only creating jobs here in New York, but for people who live in red states who want to do business around the world, having the ability to move our goods and services more easily around is important. And so infrastructure should not be a partisan issue. It should be a bipartisan issue. And it has always been so, historically. And so what changed? And how do we get back to focusing on the big challenges that we have, the long-term solutions that require people to put their short-term political interests aside and remember why they were elected, and that's in service of the American people. And last question, Valerie, this show is called Influencers. You talked a little bit about this, but how would you like to use your influence on the world? Well, I'm at the stage of my life, as I said, where I can focus where I want. And uh, as you said, I'm no longer shy. I have a big <laughs> voice and I intend to use it. And I intend to fight for gender equity, both here and around the world. I intend to try to re continue to reform our criminal justice system, which I think is un unjust. Uh, I want to continue to try to end gun violence. I'm so uh, I'm really heartbroken to think that in a country such as ours, this great, great country, that we have this epidemic of gun violence. Over, over 30,000 people die every single year. Two-thirds of them take their own lives. What are we going to do to change that? Uh, so there are a lot of big challenges that we have, and I want to use my voice to help not only uh, catalyze change, but also 
empower other people to understand the power of their voices. That's really why I wrote the book. It was a way of saying to folks, look at this young, shy girl from the south side of Chicago who ended up working for the President of the United States and who had bumps along the road, both, prof both professionally and personally. But I was resilient and I learned, I suppose, Andy, I would say to you in closing that it's important to get out of that comfort zone. And I was just clinging to my comfort zone miserably. And it was when I broke free of it and I began to have the courage to appreciate the adventure in the zig and the zag, the swirl, the, the, the swerve, however you want to refer to it. That's really where the magic of life happens. And I've been very fortunate and I just want so many other people who are searching for their voice to know that it's possible to find it and to do something good with it. I think what Valerie Jarrett teaches us is that you need to keep looking forward. And she has done that from when she was a little girl who was shy, grew up in Iran, not accepted initially when she moved back to the United States, um, a single mom for many years, but always strong and trying to be stronger and keep moving forward. And I think, boy, there's a lot to be learned from that. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.